In five, four, three, two, one. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Moon Tea Podcast. Today, we have Tanner Thompson. So Tanner is uh, a really cool guy, and uh, this, this episode is also, also really special to me. Um, but just some of his accomplishments, he's the chair of the Norwalk Bike Walk Commission. Um, he's on the advisory board. He's a software engineer at Google. He works on Google Maps um, and a bunch of other things. And he's just a big, like, I don't know, maybe like a city nerd, kind of like someone who's really into walkability, transit, uh, bike lanes. And um, yeah, yeah. Welcome, Tanner. Thanks. I, I might call myself an amateur urbanist. I, I have no <laughs> degree in urban planning or or anything like that. Uh, I studied math, actually, but I, I like cities. I like learning about cities. Cool. Um, yeah. Do you mind kind of sharing how you ended up on here and um, just yeah, like sure. an intro from, from your end? So I live in Norwalk, which is in Connecticut. It's like an hour outside of New York City. And uh, I don't remember what I was doing. I think I was on my way to the beach and I rode my bike to get around town. And I just, uh, you know, I left my house, rode down the hill. I was in the middle of South Norwalk and there's these other people on bikes. And I don't usually see other people on bikes, especially in a group. Um, but uh, I felt compelled to talk to them. Uh, I like, like John said, I'm the chair of the Biking and Walking Advisory Commission here in Norwalk. So I try to talk to people on bikes when I see them. Um, and it turned out that it was John and a couple of John's buddies. They were riding from, I think, Brooklyn, right? Didn't you start in Brooklyn? All the way up to, uh, like, I can't remember, somewhere up in Connecticut. Um, mm -hmm. Like uh, Meriden, Mil maybe? Mil Milford. Milford, yeah. So that was, um, it's like a almost a two-hour train ride. So I don't remember how long you said it was going to take on a bike, but probably like eight hours. I don't know. Yeah, I think the trip was about seven hours for us. And and uh we we learned while doing the trip that turns out the there are not great bike lanes um <laughs> so so now we know but yeah, yeah if were, only someone were, would work on that <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah there were there were portions of that bike trail where where we were being honked at for for existing and and uh luckily we made it in one piece but um yeah, yeah. Tanner was super friendly, um, helpful with uh like kind of like showing us some some like a really nice route by the beach. Oh yeah, and... you guys took a detour. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think you were following the um the East Coast Greenway, right? Mm -hmm. Roughly. So yeah. for for listeners, that's like a, a route that stretches all the way from Florida to Maine, I think, that that uh parallels the East Coast. And the, the vision is that it's like a paved bike route to get all the way from the north tip to the south tip. But um, I think it's it's only only like a small fraction is actually um, like paved, dedicated off-road bike route. Uh, most of it is just like on normal city streets, especially through Fairfield County in Connecticut, where I live. Um, I think that there's not a single piece of the East Coast Greenway that's off street. Um, and so, yeah, mostly it's it's just like a little sign that you see, um, you know, every quarter mile or so that tells you, yes, you're still on the East Coast Greenway, but it's just a route of streets. Um, so, yeah, as a result, when you when you're John Kim and you're trying to get to Milford, um, it's just streets. So sorry to disappoint. But like I said, uh, mm -hmm. it would be great if somebody would work on that. And uh, there are a few people that are working on that. So we'll get to that later or we can get to that now if you want. 
Um, yeah, I, I also wanted to mention that Tanner had a book in his basket um, written by um, a man who goes by Chuck Marone. And, mm, yeah. and uh, I had I had read some of his other books. Uh, I had started listening to his podcast. So uh, that was super cool because that was the first time that I had seen, I'd met anyone who, who knew about his work. Um, so uh so yeah I, w- I was just like oh like this is so cool like are you uh are you into all this and then that's sort of how that's sort of how we got talking um and from there I was like wow Tanner is I would love to have him on the podcast um and and yeah just have a chance to like to like see like hear about Tanner's story and then see like what like what what kind of what kind of stuff you're like looking to do um sure so like where should i start <laughs> Hugh, where, where should he start i just um, how'd you get into it and then why public transport biking and where are you wanting to go from there yeah so um i'm gonna start like way way back uh when i was a kid i grew up in the suburbs the suburbs of Indianapolis, actually. And so it was super sprawly. You know, there, it's central Indiana is just super flat. And so there's nothing naturally that that kind of uh, forms a boundary on the, the urban growth. And so it's it's suburban sprawl and it's to in its worst degree, right? There's just cornfields in every direction. So um, I lived in, in these suburbs in a single family home um, <clears throat> in a town that uh, was on the more affluent side. And so as a result, or I don't know if it was a result of that, but uh, it, the one good thing that I had going for it in terms of, of urbanism or in terms of, uh, there's a couple of good things, I guess. Um, but the one, the, the big element when I was growing up is that there was a, a bike trail. There was an old rail right of way that had been converted uh, 20 years previous, I think sometime in the eighties to a bike trail. And it was like three miles long and it went through the middle of town and my house was close to it. And the elementary school was close to it and the high school and the middle school. And I think my parents did that on purpose uh, because they wanted us to be pretty independent or to be able to be independent as kids. And that's exactly what I did. We moved there when I was eight. And I don't remember a time in living in that town where I didn't have a bicycle, where I couldn't get around by myself, even as a young kid. Um, a few years after we moved there, I had my dad's brother uh, and so and a bunch of my cousins moved into town and they lived on the other side of town but also pretty close to this trail. And so I remember when I was like 11 or 12, uh, riding my bike across town to get to their house, um, even to do things like mow their lawn. Um, and only in, in hindsight now as an adult, when I look at kind of America, um, generally do I see that that's like kind of a privileged experience in terms of transportation. Like not a lot of kids grow up in places where they just can't get around by themselves at all because they live in, in on streets that aren't safe for them to bike, their parents don't feel comfortable letting them outside. Um, in, in in a large part, that's because of safety. That's because, like, there's not a sidewalk, there's not a bike trail. The cars are going fast, right? Um, the parents don't trust drivers to to see their kid. Um, so I think the fact that I was able to get around on my bike and and really get around like most parts of town. I remember being able to ride to the grocery store, for example, and ride to to school at every level of school and ride to multiple different parks. Um, I think I realize now that that was kind of an anomalous experience, or at least that's an experience that a lot of kids don't grow up with. 
So I was thankful for that, but I wasn't really at the time, I wasn't thinking about this in, from like the perspective of an advocate, right? I was just a kid. I just wanted to ride my bike and I wanted to get places. So I do remember thinking about like, oh, you know, it would be really cool if this trail connected to other trails. So I grew up in a town called Zionsville. Next to Zionsville is Carmel. And Carmel also has a trail that's similar called the Monon Trail, which is from the Monon Railroad. And that one actually goes all the way into Indianapolis and all the way up past Carmel, I think into the next town up, which is I think Westfield. Um, so I remember daydreaming about like, what if the Zionsville Rail Trail connected to the Monon Trail and that would be so cool and we could get everywhere, right? I could go everywhere. Uh, that was my dream. And I didn't even know about public transit. Or I mean, I like I knew conceptually about it, but I had no firsthand experience with transit, except for having visited New York City. Um, I, growing up, I had some cousins also that lived here actually in Fairfield County in Connecticut. And so we came and visited them when I was young and we went into New York City. And so I had that was my exposure to public transit. Anyway, um, fast forward to, to college. Um, halfway through college, I took a break from my undergrad and I was a missionary for two years for the Mormon church. And um, we can get into like the religious aspects of that if you're interested, but uh, the urbanism aspects of that was that I got to spend two years in German cities, which are completely different than American cities, right? In terms of design, in terms of layout, in terms of transportation, especially public transportation. I was just floored from like day one at how good the public transportation network was. I literally landed at the airport and like walked across the terminal and got on a train and I was in the middle of the city in 15 minutes. And like, that was a completely foreign concept, like so novel and so felt luxurious, like, like that it had actually been designed for people like me, people who wanted uh, transportation that didn't, didn't uh, require a car. And like, I didn't even, even at that point, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms, but I just knew that I loved it. And so throughout the two years that I was living in Germany, um, I continued to experience public transit that was amazing. You know, on like day three, I get assigned my first area and I get on a high-speed train. And like two hours later, I'm, you know, on the other side of the country and in this little town that just happens to be served by high-speed rail. Like it was a town of like 60,000 people. And I literally, I took a, a train directly from Frankfurt to this town um, in like two hours. So that was, that was mind blowing. And then I got there and we got to use the tram system and the bus system. And it was like, 40 bucks a month to use this town's like really well integrated transit services. Um, so anyway, again, like just uh, at every turn, I was just really impressed with the, the transportation options available in Germany. So um, at, at one point, actually, I, I had a special assignment. Uh, I worked in the, the mission office and for about eight months, I was in charge of buying all the train tickets for all the like 250 missionaries assigned to, to our area. And the, that was really cool. It was like a, an optimization problem, um, like a logistics problem that I got to solve every six weeks when, when people would move around. Um, so I got to know like the system kind of from the top down in that respect, um, and that was cool too. So I got back, I, I went back to school. I knew that I liked geography. I knew that I, uh, I liked math and I liked tech. And so I started taking some geography classes in addition to my math classes. And I discovered geographic information systems and I discovered remote sensing. I did an internship in remote sensing and that was super cool. Um, I kind of set the goal that I wanted to work on Google Maps because that's kind of like the, the, the you know, the Venn diagram of like tech and math and, and geography, like Google Maps is right there in the middle. Um, and I had read somewhere that like, if you work at Google that you get free sushi in the office. And so that was irresistible. Mm -hmm. Like at that point, <laughs> the Venn diagram of those three things plus sushi, um, it, there was one thing there. And so that was, that became my goal to work on Google Maps. Um, and it took a few tries. Uh, I worked at a tech company in Utah. I worked at a tech company 
uh, like a little uh, consulting startup here in Connecticut. And then on my third try, I got into Google. Um, my wife and I had moved out here to work for that, that consulting company. Um, and then at the same time that I got into Google in New York City, my wife got into Yale. She's a grad student at Yale in computer science. So we stayed in Connecticut. Um, and that's kind of where I started to think about advocacy because as soon as I started commuting into the city to work at Google New York, um, I started riding city bike. Uh, I started using this bike share to get around New York, mostly to get from Grand Central where my train came in to my office, which is about two miles. And I remember just being so, so disappointed in the, like the bike network, like even in Midtown Manhattan, which is like the densest place in North America, right? Like you would, the, the place where you would think it would be most logical for people to get around on a bike instead of a car, that you still had cars parking in bike lanes. You have the police parking in bike lanes and many streets that just didn't have bike lanes at all. And I'm like, why is this? Like, why can't we have nice things? So I started to pull on that thread. Like, why can't we have nice things? Why can't we have like decent bike lanes? Why can't we get around safely in Midtown Manhattan or anywhere in New York um, on a bike? So that led me to Twitter. That led me to bike Twitter, which is... Uh, it is a raucous place. Um, there's a lot of, of strong opinions and very dedicated advocates on bike Twitter. And I still, I, I'm, I'm part of it now. I'm definitely identify with bike Twitter. Um, <laughs> but that's what, that's how I found it. Uh, just because I was so fed up with the, with the infrastructure. Um, this was summer of 2019. I started going to protests that I found. Uh, in particular, there was a string of, of deaths in New York in the summer of 2019 of cyclist deaths that uh, was high profile and transportation alternatives, which is a big advocacy group. They put together a big protest at Washington Square Park, um, a die-in where I think like a thousand people showed up and um, you know, like everybody like laid on the ground for 10 minutes um, in, in protest of <clears throat> the city's kind of just inability to, uh, to handle or, or to address these, these deaths, uh, just cyclists getting hit on the street. So um, that was, that, that whole summer was was kind of radicalizing for me. I just started to see the city through new eyes and also started to see myself as like somebody who could affect change, even just like a small level. But after after that summer, um, you know, after just a few months of being involved in New York City, I started to think like, I don't live here. Like I work here and New York is great. And maybe it's the greatest city in the world, even though they don't have bike lanes, but I don't live there. I live in Norwalk. I live in Connecticut. I live in the small city. Um, maybe I can have an impact there. And I don't even know what's going on there. I should at least find out what's going on there. So I, my wife and I both kind of felt this way for different reasons. And so we both went to a city council meeting and they just happened to be discussing that day they were appointing somebody to the bike walk advisory commission. And I was like, that sounds good. That sounds like where I fit. So I started showing up to those meetings and long story short, um, there was a vacancy a few months later and uh, the mayor appointed me to fill the vacancy because I had been participating. Um, and then after about a year, the chair, the woman who was serving as chair stepped down and asked me if I would take her place because I was excited and because I think nobody else had the bandwidth to, to do the work of the chair. So yeah, that's that's how I kind of got into my current role. Um, and one, one takeaway that I, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that I just want to point out now is that there's so much that happens at the local government level that's driven by, uh, like, that, that happens at meetings where very few people show up. And that just by like showing up, you can have a, a whole lot of impact, especially if you're if you're interested in something, if you're passionate about something, if you have ideas, if you're if you're not afraid to like listen to to like understand like the current state um, 
and kind of blend your, at least in my case, my idealism with, with like all the practicality that you have to have if you're dealing with government, um, all the realism, the real politic, if you will. Um, like if, if you can, if you can hold those two things um, in, in tension and kind of pay attention to both of them and let both of them inform you and show up to meetings, you can have huge impact because there's just so few people who do. There's like, and, and I'm just talking about commissions, although I think that's a huge source of potential. Um, I'm also talking about just like public input meetings. You know, the city's like uh, considering redoing the street and they'll probably have a meeting just to see if anybody in the public shows up. And if you show up and you say like, it's important to me that this, this street serve not only cars, but also people walking and people on bikes and people on the bus and people in wheelchairs and people with strollers and people on scooters. Um, like that, that can have a huge impact because, you know, maybe three people will show up to that meeting and then the city will, will base a lot of their plans around the public input that they receive, which is three people. So uh, that's, that's the, like lesson number one. I love it. I love it. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I was actually uh, like, I think there, there was one big like underlying question that I was hoping to to kind of like have as a conversation, which is uh, I understand there are a lot of people kind of like frustrated about um, the way that our cities are designed, um, the way that the way that in a lot of places you're only allowed to have like one house with like a certain size yard and and all of that. Um, and so, yeah, so like I want I wanted to ask like how does one get involved? And you mentioned like there are a lot of ways to get involved with local government. Um, do you know if most cities and towns have a bike walk commission? Is that is that something that's specific to Norwalk? Um, yeah. Yeah, um, the answer is some of them do. Um, I'm most familiar with the cities here in Fairfield County in Connecticut. Um, some do, some, some will have, um, like the commission that I'm on is like a, an official part of city government. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's members are appointed by the mayor and we don't really have any like political power. We have a small administrative budget. We don't have like a big budget. Um, but um, sometimes you'll find cities that have a setup like that, like Fairfield here in Fairfield County has a similar setup um, where it's part of the, the city government. Um, but it's also very common to find an advocacy group, especially in like a medium to large size city. For example, Stanford here in Connecticut um, Stanford has a, an advocacy group. They don't actually have an advisory commission in, in the city government, but they have a very well-organized and active advocacy group called People Friendly Stanford and P, and, or PFS. And PFS advocates for um, non-car transportation and they advocate for better housing policy. So, and those two, as I'm sure we'll get to here in a sec, those two go hand in hand. They, in fact, <laughs> that Venn diagram is almost a circle. Like transportation policy and land use policy are basically the same thing. But uh, I think more generally, um, to answer your question, um, in it, it depends on the city. You know, like I, uh, the, the the city, the, the town that I grew up in, um, was only maybe twelve thousand people at the time. It's probably fifteen thousand people now. And as far as I know, they don't have any sort of advisory commission. Um, but what they will have is they'll have a department of transportation, or, or you know maybe a, a department of public works if it's a very small town that might be lumped in with public works. Um, and so if you're interested and you can't find an advisory commission, um, that probably means your town is small and you can just go like set up a meeting with the, the director of public works and ask them these questions. But in a, in a larger city, I think you'll usually find something. That makes a lot of sense. And 
and like you said just like showing up to city council meetings yeah like just like start understanding how your city works like mo accomplishing any sort of of movement in terms of city design street design um planning city planning um it's going to have to go through your city's government and so if you don't understand how your city government works even just like at a very general high level you're going to need to because that's how the change is going to happen yeah hugh aren't you uh aren't you like a uh like on the chair of the uh, gilbert city like like how did you get how did you get involved there i'm wondering if there are some parallels um i'm we're we're a nonprofit that's i'm on the board for the gilbert sister cities and my neighbor that i grew up with she is part of a few different ones and that's one of the boards that she's on and she invited me to interview and when a seat had opened up and there were motion to have some new members join and that's how i ended up trying to I, I just was looking forward to give back to the community try to volunteer some more and see how i could possibly help some kids go to ireland and china sichuan province so worked out now i try to do the tech side for them that sounds super cool way yeah. to go for for being part of that thanks appreciate it it's been been fun so far and just trying to learn more about city government. It's been a great way to kind of, I'm not really, I don't really have people like, what are you trying to do? You're just like on the younger side, why are you on this? And like, honestly, I'm, I have no goals or aspirations in this sense to be in like politics or anything like that. I'm just, it's been really fun though, just to try to give back, but also I get to like meet people and I've been invited to a few different conversations locally of local politicians trying to advocate for this or that. And I was like, whoa, Interesting. So I think one of the best ways probably for people to get into it is ex exactly as you're saying, I, I think that's fantastic is volunteer for your like HOA board or your local city government boards or go to different meetings, see what the different issues are on the ballot or things that you're interested in. And when those meetings are and go and listen at the conversation and try to have a bit of a, an opinion on it sometimes. I don't know much about it yet, but again, that's where no, I, my I, thoughts I are. I think you're you're right on the money, um, especially like finding something that you have an opinion about, right? Um, and I guess I, I've always been blessed with lots of opinions, so that was never an issue for me. Um, but especially like on issues that I care about, that's that's what really drove me to get involved. And that's kind of advice that I give to a lot of people, both in terms of like volunteer work and also in terms of like my, my career in tech. Um, like I've, I've found a lot of success on both fronts by just like leaning into what I am really excited about. And I found that I'm excited about maps and I'm excited about transportation. I'm excited about uh, changing transportation, you know, making it better. Um, I'm excited about, I'm like passionate about creating good user experiences. And I don't mean that in terms of like the UI of an app, although maybe in, in some parallel universe, I became a UI developer and I'm really passionate about that. Um, but I really like when I see a bad experience, when I see a bad user experience, like I have to fix it. And so at this point, I kind of consider myself like a like a real life uh, bug reporter. Like I'll see something that doesn't work in real life, whether that's like a, a busted sidewalk or that's like a street sign that's down or a bike lane that's being parked in. Right. Um, or a sidewalk that's being parked on. That happens all the time here in, in Norwalk um, or like at the train station. I just noticed the other day that like the 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 ETA that's listed on the departure board of the train station that that wasn't updating correctly. And like, these are the, all of these I think of as bugs. Um, and I think of myself as the person who, like, I, I feel like it's incumbent upon me because I've recognized them to report them 
And if and once you report a bug and you care about it, you've got to go figure out who the bug's assigned to and then follow up on it, right? And figure out why is the bug not being worked on? Maybe they don't understand. Maybe I assigned it to the wrong person. Uh, maybe the the person that it's assigned to, like they have different priorities. And so, you know, you got to go up the chain and figure out like ultimately who is deciding their priorities. And, and like at a tech company that, you know, you just go up the management chain, right? And at the state of government, it's kind of the same way. Um, I, I've learned actually my experience at Google has kind of informed my advocacy because it's a huge bureaucracy and so is any government, right? So trying to figure out like who's responsible for this part of, of the product, you know, what if that's Google Maps, for example, it's very, it feels very similar to figuring out like who's responsible for making the decision about our streets in our city? Is that the Department of Public Works? Is it the Department of Transportation? Or is it something that's shared between them? And so I have to escalate up to the mayor. Um, I haven't done that yet, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a very similar process. I can I can tell you work in software because I've also <laughs> I've also done the same thing. Uh, I remember there was a a website where the uh, they had like a form for returns, and the address for my parents' home has a the Spanish Enya like with the squiggle yeah. on top of the N, and and that would like destroy the entire like form and so i i remember writing back to the to the company and be like uh sorry my alarm's going on oh you good there there's a reminder for tana you can check for updates once the yeah so my uh <laughs> my google home's reminding me about something but I, <laughs> I i yanked the power cord so it shouldn't interrupt us again <laughs> <laughs> You good, you good. Uh, but yeah, I remember, I remember just being like, "Oh, I am equipped to, to look into this." And I, and I remember looking at the error messages, and then kind of like, writing down a like, "This is probably it," and then like, emailing it to the customer service team, like, "Hey, can you like forward this to your devs?" Um, and yeah, I, I never heard back, but it was hopefully helpful, but. You gotta follow like that's up a with large... them, man. <laughs> yeah, right. That that definitely is a large part of the job, just like finding problems. And then if you're not the person to fix it, then like finding the right person for it. And probably probably a good way of like approaching things in general, because there are a lot of problems. There are a lot of like hard, important things to work on. Um so I'm I'm curious how you think about that. Like, do you have like, like, let's take like Elon Musk, for example, he, he, he thinks some of these important problems are, uh, there's like, like we need humans to be a multi-planetary species and, uh, we're getting screwed by climate, by climate change. So, uh, we need transportation to be sustainable. And he kind of just like started with that and is like working towards those. Um, like for you, what are some like, kind of like some of those really big overarching problems. Um, I know city planning is a part of it, but then do you have like, do you have like other interests and like other things that you're kind of like working towards? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's uh, it's evolved. The answer is definitely yes, um, but it's evolved um, over over the months and years. Like when I, when I very first started to get involved, it was literally like, I just want to ride my bike. Like I, I just want to be able to ride my bike and, not be stressed out that I'm going to get hit. Um, you know, I, I just want to be able to 
um, to get rid of my car. I, or, you know, I want to be able to get across town without my car. Um, but the more that I have kind of learned about why we can't, like I said earlier, why we can't have nice things, um, I realized that, like I've learned about all the different uh, benefits of moving our cities away from being built around cars. Um, and like, they're all motivating to me, but I think like at a, at like a really high level to answer your question, like personally, um, like the big thing that I'm, that I'm working toward, I guess like I'm, I'm this is going to sound trite or, or cliche, but like, I'm, I'm trying to find a way that I can make a difference in the world, right. That I can, um, that I can improve the world for the better. Um, and I, I think that, like I said earlier, that like by leaning into the things I'm excited about, like I've found that the, the, those ways that I imagine I can make the world better are in, in transportation, uh, in city design. Um, I don't know. Does that answer the question? It was a very broad question. So <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think, I think some interesting things from like the Elon Musk perspective of having these large goals and working towards them, but also in a different way, like I'm not a person that has these large types of goals either that one works towards. I'm, I like hearing from people like yourself as well, Tanner, where you kind of see the small details and you just like, you're working towards those, the things that you find to be passionate, that, that you find passion in. And then also you find issues in that you can help build and improve upon for others locally I think that's actually probably even more beneficial uh, if most people did that than just trying to you know solve world poverty but you know please do people but it is something that I don't I love that question as well just wanting to say I'm also a similar person that's like I don't know what I'm going to do I'm not going to solve world hunger but at least I can help get a kid a free ride to Ireland to learn about friendship and what they do as a culture there so that they can become more worldly you know like i don't know i, I, I think it's and also by the way google maps is pretty much going to change everyone's life for the better if you find one single bug and or add a reporting <laughs> feature for a broken sidewalk or something it's like how do you i love how technology and especially people in technology have that ability if they are going about it with empathetic design perspectives to improve the daily processes for people at scale. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Thinking at scale actually is, is something I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Cause I think that I, I learned a lot about that when I joined Google and I, in hindsight, I can see how it impacted the way I think about uh, stuff outside of work. Um, like, especially advocacy. Um, like I mentioned, when I got involved with this, I literally, I just wanted to be able to ride my bike safely and I wanted to be able to, to catch the bus uh, and, and, you know, rely on the train and stuff like that. Um, but uh, very soon after joining Google, I, I, I was exposed to this, um, this mindset that is at Google and at a lot of tech companies, I'm sure, which is that like, we can have more impact, the, the more we can scale. Right. And the, especially Google that like everything you do is at Google scale. So it, it brings a lot of responsibility, but also brings a whole lot of potential impact. Um, and so I think that like, as that started to like seep into how I think about everything, um, I started thinking like, you know, I could, I could ride my bike today and that could have a good impact on the city. You know, I could save some carbon emissions. Um, it's like, it got this marginal positive health benefit for me because I get to exercise. Um, but, it, and maybe like, you know, taking the example of like, 
um, like somebody who's parked in the bike lane, right? Like I could I could go like knock on the door of the house that's there and, and ask the person to move their car, right? Or like leave a sticky note um, or report it to the police, right? But like, that's a very small impact. It's very local. It's it's good because those are the, those are the actions that need to be taken in order for change to happen. But once I understand like how things work on a larger scale, I can start doing things like um, setting up a meeting with the police chief and asking him like, do you have a systematic approach to uh, like ticketing people who park on the sidewalk, ticketing people who park in bike lanes, um, or like even taking a step farther back to focus on um, on grow on like um, I guess just networking, like like growing the people's um, awareness of not only me but of 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 the ideas that I'm trying to sell to the public. Um, you know, just kind of developing a, a an atmosphere of like positivity and excitement around transportation reform so that when I do go to the police chief, I can say like, hey, all these people are on board. We need to make our city more accessible to people who walk and people who bike, uh, because that makes a huge difference. And not just to the police chief, but anybody that I go to talk to, right? Um, and then, you know, go a level above that. There's like, well, I could do this for one city. And after I've done this for one city for a little bit, I've learned some things. I've learned some best practices. I've learned how cities work and, and what works and what doesn't, or at least what's worked for, for our city. And so more recently, I've started to network with cities around Fairfield County, right? Like I, I showed up to a, a people-friendly Stanford meeting and I showed up to like a Fairfield Bike Walk Commission meeting. Um, and that has helped to spread best practices. Um, I've showed, I'm shown up to like Bike Walk Connecticut, which is kind of a statewide advocacy group. I've shown up to their meetings and given my perspective, I've showed up to like the Connecticut Commuter Rail Council, which is uh, kind of an advisory board for uh, for rail transportation in the state of Connecticut. And so, like the the the, the farther I go, the more I realize that that there are like you can have an effect at a greater scale, um, right? Like you can. Another thing that bugs me to no end is that um, bringing bikes on the train on Metro North is like severely limited. You can only do it on off-peak trains, and you can only do it on some off-peak trains. Um, but the, what bothers me is that because it makes sense when your train's coming out of Manhattan and it's it's full to the brim of people, right? There's like there's no room for bikes. But once it gets past Stanford or past South Norwalk, like the train is kind of empty every single time. Like you can you can predictably guarantee that it, there's going to be room for bikes, but the train is still considered a peak train, and so you can't bring your bike. And like one one way you can deal with that is that you can just like be a scofflaw and bring your bike on the train, which I did this morning actually. Don't tell anybody. Um, but you can also like have bigger impact by like bringing that up, which I did. I went to the commuter rail council meeting and the president of Metro North was there. And I was like, hey, here's an idea. You should let bikes on the train once enough people have gotten off. And I got to follow up on that, speaking of following up, uh, because it hasn't happened yet. But, uh, you know, like if, if that could get adopted, then lots of people, that would unlock commutes for lots of people. For example, just anecdotally, for example, there's a woman that I know from Twitter who lives up by Danbury, which is about 45 minutes north of me, and works here in Norwalk at the community college. And she takes the train down from Danbury and then walks like two miles to the community college or takes the bus. Um, but during the pandemic, when, when all the peak trains were canceled and they were all off peak, she brought her bike and it got to work way quicker. And once, the, once they brought back the peak trains, she couldn't do that anymore. Even though the train <laughs> from Danbury to South Norwalk is always empty, it's it's like predictably empty. It's not very high ridership, but because it's considered a peak train, anyway, you get the point. Um, my point is that there are people who would use this, who would 
um, whose lives would be improved, who could you know, either save time or maybe switch from driving to taking the train if they could bring their bike on the train at, it, at a time when it's very reasonable from a practical point perspective to do so. And all that needs to be changed is the policy. So I guess what I'm getting to is that um, by focusing on policy, you can have um, effects at scale. That makes a ton of sense. Huh. And and it's not like it's not like you started with thinking about, oh, I, I need to do this and th this and this with policy. It was like, I want to ride my bike safely. Oh, like where what are the organizations that are like responsible for this? And so Yeah. Yeah. That is great. Um you wrote on the form riding every kind of bicycle. I'm oh. <laughs> kind of I'm kinda I'm kinda curious what bicycles you have like and if you have a cargo bike uh like how did you oh, go man. about finding one if only i would love to have a cargo bike so um I, right now there's a, a pretty strong limiting factor and that is that i live in a townhome and i don't have a garage um maybe this is a good segue into land use because the reason that i don't have more bicycles right now is because of my local zoning regulations so let's put a pin in that because first i want to answer your question um Currently, I have one bike, and my wife has one bike, and we keep them in the living room. Um, I have a gravel bike, which is a really good, like, all-purpose kind of bike. Um, you can go on long road rides. You can go off-road. It's a great commuter bike, and I use it for all of those things, um, but mostly just for getting around town. The only thing I don't like about it is that uh, you have to lean over pretty far, right? Um, like, as opposed to, like, a beach cruiser or a Dutch bike, like uh, the standard bike people use to get around the Netherlands, which, for the uninitiated, has one of the highest rates of, of bicycle ridership um, in the world. Um, Dutch bikes are, are shaped very differently where you sit up and the handlebars are closer to you and they're much farther above the seat. Uh, a typical racing bike, like the seat will be at the same level or higher than the handlebars. Um, but a Dutch bike, like the handlebars are way up here and the seat's way down here. So you actually can sit up while you ride. And there's a lot of benefits to that. One of the one of them is that it's like more comfortable. Um, another one is that if you hit a bump, um, you're a lot less likely to go over the handlebars. And so it's actually safer. Um, and that's one of many reasons that uh, nobody wears a helmet in the Netherlands. There's also a lot of good infrastructure reasons like that cars and bikes are very well separated. Um, but in, in the Netherlands, as a result, people talk about biking as if it's just walking, but with wheels. Um, they actually have two different words in their language for, um, for somebody who's like racing on a bike versus somebody who's just biking to get around. Uh, and the, the former, the one for somebody who's racing, is a wheel runner or, or literally a wheel runner um, because like it's, it's more analogous to running, right? Or to sprinting. Whereas people who are just riding to get around, um, they're not exerting themselves. They don't consider exercise. It's just like walking, except you're going a little bit faster. So anyway, that, that's a digression. Um, I have a gravel bike. My wife has like a commuter, which um, is a little bit more like a Dutch bike. She's just a little bit more upright. Neither of them though are cargo bikes, neither are electric. Um, but yeah, once um, once I can resolve my zoning issues, um, my plan is to build a shed in the parking lot and store, you know, uh, <laughs> three times as many bicycles. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Probably start with one uh, in in that shed. And and my goal for that one, my plan is for that to be an electric cargo bike. Um, probably a long tail, which again for the uninitiated, a long tail is uh, like a normal bike, but the the distance between the back wheel and the seat is a lot longer. And so that allows you to put a seat if you want to put like another person 
on the back or um, bags for cargo, or e there's even some long tails that have a bucket that kind of straddles that the back wheel. Um, so there are options there. Um, that's probably what I would do um, as my next bike. Um, the one after that though, um, might be uh, what in, in the Netherlands they call a Bachfiets, which translates to box bike. Um, and that's, you, you may have seen these before. Sometimes they're an actual bicycle. Sometimes they're actually a tricycle because um, they have two wheels out front. But the idea is that between the handlebars and the front wheels, there's a big box, a big bucket. Um, and they, the handling is much different. But that's like the standard way that like in the Netherlands, uh, like a, a parent with children will like cart multiple children around is is in a Bachfiets. So um, yeah, when, whenever my wife and I have kids, um, I look forward to being a bike dad and sticking all my kids in in a big <laughs> bike feats and riding around Brooklyn so or wherever cute. I'm living. <laughs> that's that's my goal. Like that's been the vision for now for a couple of years at least. So, so you would never like you're just not planning on having a car. Is that? Oh well, I, I, no, <laughs> not necessarily. I have a car now, um, oh, or at I least see. my wife and I share a car. Um, it's a it's a 2008 Toyota Yaris. It's still nice. chugging along. Um, it's uh, it's nothing special except it's uh, it's special to us because it it fits all of our needs. Um, and I drive it as little as possible, but still drive it sometimes. Uh, like we we still go to church every Sunday, and um, for because of poor urban planning, our church is in New Canaan, and it's only accessible via car. It's five miles away. I I bike to it sometimes, but I don't really want to show up sweaty in my church clothes to church. Um, and nor does my wife. So um, we drive to church. But like in the long term, if if we had electric bikes and it was like a nice day, I bet that I, we could probably do it. Um, but like until until we move or until um, like there's a church in Norwalk that we could go to, um, that like we were probably driving that. That's like when we've talked because we've talked about this before. Um, that's like in in the short term, like in 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 our present lives, that's the thing that probably keeps us driving most regularly. But we also like we don't we don't live in a place that is as conducive to living without a car as I'd like. I mean that was the whole <laughs> that's the whole subject of the first half of this this podcast, right? Um, still working on it, still working on improving Norwalk. But yeah, the I would love to get rid of my car um, for the the financial reasons, right? Like we we paid off our car a long time ago, um, so we don't have to worry about the car payment. We still have to worry about the insurance, right? And we have to worry about the repairs, like. It's an older car, and so we still sink like fifteen hundred dollars a year just into repairs, just to keep the thing running, um, in like a state of good repair. And obviously, there's the gas, right? Um, but there's other costs associated with the car that people don't usually think about, and that is, for example, the the built-in cost of the parking spot at the place where you live. Um, like I was saying, I mentioned zoning a minute ago. Um, the where my wife and I live, we have a townhome, and it's in a little complex of like thirteen units, and that complex has a parking lot. And that parking lot has about 19, 20 spots. So there's maybe one and a half spots per unit. Um, but that parking takes up land, right? And so if if when the townhomes had been built, um, they had been built in a place where people didn't need to live with a car or maybe live, needed to live with fewer cars, um, then less land would have been required. And land is expensive, right? Um, or alternatively, the same land could have been used to build more units of housing. And you know, could have housed more people, and also the developer could have made more money by selling more more units. So um, as a result, the more parking that your housing has, 
like the, the higher kind of the built-in cost of that housing is uh, because you're paying for the land that it's on or you're paying for the parking garage, like a little slice of the parking garage where your car is, right? In, in like Manhattan, this is decoupled, right? Because all this housing in Manhattan was built way before cars. And so there's no parking spot, there's no parking garage. Instead, if you want a car, you have to pay market price to park the car somewhere. And that market price is like ridiculously expensive. It's like, what, 500 bucks a month to park your car in Manhattan in a garage. But that's because the land is valuable, right? It's it's because that's what, um, that pe people will pay that. And that's that's the amount of money that uh, the garage needs to to charge in order to to cover the cost. Or maybe they're, they're upcharging, I don't know. But you see my point, right? That like, if you can decouple the cost of housing and of parking, you'll find that parking is like an appreciable part of that. And it, it differs depending on where you are. But like in a place like Norwalk, where we have this downtown core that was built way before cars and it's it's dense and stuff is walkable to the train station, um, like land values are, are quite high. And so if you can if you can dispense with your parking, like imagine if you own an apartment building um, that sits on half an acre and then you have half an acre of parking, if you could sell off that parking, you could make a ton of money um, and maybe build more housing, right? And house more people and bring down in at, at scale, if you do this all over the place, bring down the overall cost of housing by adding to the, the housing supply. So uh, I've, I've gotten squarely in the category of land use. Hopefully you're starting to understand if you didn't already how um, land use policy has a huge effect on transportation and a huge effect also on housing prices. Um, in particular, the a policy that I wanna point out is minimum parking requirements. Um, because a lot of people don't realize that the reason that your townhome, for example, my townhome, complex has one and a half parking spots per unit is because that's the law is because when it was built the law said if you have uh, multifamily housing development you're required to build this much parking to provide this much off-street parking per unit and literally like the number 1.5 is hard-coded into the law they've since reformed it and it's only one and a third they brought it down <laughs> by a little bit um, and so as a result that that's what would potentially allow me to put a shed in one of my parking spots because it would consume the parking spot. The parking lot would effectively get smaller, but it would still satisfy that legal requirement. But not everybody could do that because if everybody did that, there would be zero parking spots and we would no longer be conformant with the zoning code. So that keeps people driving cars because they have uh, basically no marginal cost to owning the, the car or continuing to own the car because they've already paid for the parking spot. It's built into their, their housing payment or their rent. So I know that was a long segment, but uh, yeah, I, I really am uh, I'm convinced that that um, land use policy is like very very undervalued. It's it's underrated as a, a source of of potential reform. Um, actually, I brought this book. I'm I'm reading a few books right now, but one of them that's about land use policy is this one. It's called Arbitrary Lines: um, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. It's by M. Nolan Gray, and he's an urban planner in LA, he used to work for the city of New York. Uh, I think he did a PhD at UCLA. Um, but it's essentially a history of zoning, an overview of how zoning works, and then an argument for why zoning is flawed. And ultimately, his thesis is that we would be better off if we completely got rid of zoning than we are now. Perhaps the optimal solution is somewhere in between. But he argues that that the other end of the spectrum, having no zoning at all, is better than we are where we are now. That's fair. I. Uh... For what it's worth, I am reading that book right now. You are? So, no way. Yeah. That's great. Love to hear yeah. it. Yeah, I I really enjoy it. And 
it was it was interesting because I this is this is my like first foray into learning about zoning and I was talking to my friend who used to work for uh, the city government in San Francisco and and I was just like zoning sucks just just hating <laughs> uh, and he well he he basically pointed out that like there's zoning everywhere and a lot of it is for good reason and um the we have that obvious example of like we don't want a factory next to uh next to homes and i guess uh in the book he he also talks about how how instead of like this overarching zoning like you can just have like neighbors negotiate with one another and like like work work things out um, yeah, like there are alternative policy solutions to that problem. Like zoning is, if if everything is, if all you have is a hammer, like everything's a nail, right? And so zoning has kind of been used like that to to treat um, every single different uh, different ill, and and a lot of those ills, unfortunately, have been uh, things like having poor people in your town, and and people have used zoning to to deal with that perceived problem by just pricing people out. Yeah, I if I if I was a king of a small small town, like I would love to to like use zoning for my advantage and just have like parking maximums, like yeah, like do do all kinds of things. Um, and I I wanted to ask you, uh, if you were if you were kind of like someone stronger than a mayor in of Norwalk, like if you were kind of like the king of Norwalk, like what? What are some like policy changes that <laughs> I was the uh, benevolent dictator? <laughs> uh, yeah, like what would what would like those first few years look like? Um, assuming that, oh boy, assuming that like you did not have to worry about re-election, um, like you were you were good for like a decade. Yeah, I mean, uh, minimum parking requirements would probably be the first thing to go, um, and then like a, a bunch of other zoning requirements, um which uh, you, you're, you probably read about already in the book, but uh, things like um, setback requirements, um, I would at least like take a second look at those. Um, minimum lot size, um, floor area ratio. Um, just like to, to start allowing the, the kind of housing that the people want to be built uh, and the amount of housing that people want, right? Um, and to, to stop... Um, concentrating it purely in these big mega projects, um, which which like have a place, right? Like mega projects do, I, when I say mega project, I'm talking about like a five or six story apartment building, um, typically, you know, with like a hundred or more units. Um, like those, those serve a purpose, they house a lot of people. Um, but you're probably familiar with the term missing middle, right? Like there's this whole, there's a spectrum of, of housing typologies. And right now kind of we have these big ones in the middle of cities um, recently. Um, there's been the big push to do transit-oriented development, meaning that like these big buildings get built next to train stations, which is great. But then at some point, like there's this hard boundary between where the the five over ones are and then the single-family homes, right? And and that that hard boundary um, could be a lot more smooth, where we could transition from the big buildings to like you know uh, uh, I forget what they call them, but uh, like a, a set of it's it's common in like and I want to say in like Boston, there's like a, a building that has like six units, like two two on each floor, three floors. Um, like that could be next. And then, then you have townhomes and you have duplexes and then you have single family homes. And it's this like, this like um, continuous spectrum as opposed to like 
this this binary of like big apartment block or single family home. So that's maybe the first thing I would do. Um, actually, there's there's a policy um, that's that's on that's in the works in Norwalk um, called Complete Streets. Um, complete Streets is the idea that streets should be designed for all users. And what's in the works in Norwalk is a Complete Streets design guide. Um, there's a consultant working on it now, actually. Um, they're taking all the different street design guides that Norwalk has, they're kind of fragmented, and bringing them all in together into one, one document, one, you know, probably multi-hundred page um, book that, that will say exactly like, when this kind of street gets redeveloped, it should have these features that ensure that all users get served. Um, and that once that's done being compiled, um, it'll be adopted into law. It'll, you know, like we'll adopt a, an ordinance that says if you if you as a city agency are touching a street, then you have to follow this design guide. So um, I would I would definitely do that. Um, as far as other transportation, um, I I would also take a look at the, the transit agency. We have a transit agency in Norwalk that serves only Norwalk. Um, and I would have to take a closer look at like how it operates to see like if there's either legislation like policy that's getting in the way of it being better and, and serving the public better, or if there are the, if there are policies that need to be enacted to to like guide it in the right direction. I, I don't I don't know. I haven't done that research yet. Um, but uh, yeah, like on the on the policy front, that's probably what I would do. But like on the non-policy front, on like the soft power front. Um, I, I guess <laughs> I'm still kind of thinking within the constraints of our current political system, which is not the question you asked, right? But uh, let's say our mayor and I was operating within the actual system that we have, I would just talk a lot more about it, right? Like I would bring lots of of airtime and awareness mm -hmm. to this issue, and I would I would just like talk all the time about the benefits of of giving people transportation options, um, like the public health benefits of, of people just like being active more, um, of, of the obvious environmental benefits. Of, of CO2, right? But then there's also like all the particulate matter that comes out of car tires and car brakes and even out of the tailpipe. Um, like that's been linked to asthma a dozen times. Um, then there's like the, the community benefits, right? Like if your street is quieter, if there's less traffic, then you're more likely to, to know your neighbors across the street. You're more likely to interact with the people who live around you. <clears throat> if you spend more time outside of a car, you're more likely to run into those neighbors and, and have you know casual interactions with people you don't already know. Um, if you're driving everywhere, you're less likely to do that. Um, <clears throat> then there's like the independence for kids, right? Like I would I would drive that point home because like that's a that's a very very powerful uh, like rhetorical uh, device in in politics is to talk about the kids, right? Like it's a cliche. Like won't somebody think of the children, right? But like literally, won't somebody think about all the kids that can't get anywhere without being chauffeured around by their parents? Like the kids are sick of it, and the parents are sick of it too. Like I was literally at dinner with with a friend of mine who has uh, like three or four kids, and She's like completely unprompted. She's like complaining about how she's like tied to to the to the van or the SUV. I don't know what kind of car they have. They're tied to the car because she's like just shuttling her kids around. Like as soon as school gets out, it's like all evening, every weeknight, um, she's just shuttling kids. And I'm like, you, you realize there's a better way. Like your kids could drive themselves if they just had like a street where they could bike on, right? So now we come full circle because that's how I grew up, and I feel like every kid should be able to have that. I love it. I uh, I am on the same page with you on a lot of those things, and uh, yeah, I think I think hopefully a lot of the people listening um are at least at least slightly more aware of of how 
land use policy about how a local government kind of like influences how streets are designed, how, how housing gets built and um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully we can make a small positive dent in the world of walkability and transit and uh, protected bike lanes and all of that. Um, and yeah, Tanner, I'm sure, I'm sure we could like talk for another hour. Like we didn't even go into the LDS part or like your, your uh, mission in Germany or um, a, a bunch of other things, but um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. And we, we ask all our guests this, but do you have any words of wisdom and parting thoughts? Um, very generic. So it's okay if it's, if it's a cliche, but do you have any like parting thoughts for our listeners? Well, I, I did actually have a, a quick question for Hugh. Oh. Um, since Hugh, you said you live in Gilbert, right? Yeah. Um, Phoenix now, but near South Mountain, but grew up in Gilbert and yeah, born and raised here. Gotcha. Are you familiar with cul-de-sac? Uh, yes, we we had multiple cul-de-sacs in our neighborhoods. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean the street typology. There's a there's a real estate startup in Tempe called cul-de-sac. Oh, is that the one you sent me, John? That's the upcoming one. Yeah, the yeah, he, walkable neighborhood. I sent you no a, a link. I sent you a link to it, uh, like two months ago, maybe when I first heard about it. Gotcha. So you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we we so, know what you're talking about. Yeah. So for the listeners, I'll describe it just briefly, unless you want to. No, please. I would love to hear from the man himself. <laughs> well, I'm not the man. Um, the, uh, um, oh, shoot, I'm blanking on his name. Um, Ryan Johnson. He's, uh, he's the, I think, the CEO. Um, he's on Twitter. He's super active on Twitter, and that's where I found him. Um, but basically, he like got his start in tech. Um, and after a little while, he was transitioned into real estate and kind of took a lot of the same mindset that uh, the tech companies had and applied it to real estate and decided, I can't remember exactly where the inspiration came from, but the, the business model is they are building walkable car-free communities from scratch. And their first one is in Tempe and it's under construction. I think it's already sold out or it's close to sold out. Um, this first one is, is just gonna be rent only, um, but it's like, I think around a thousand units of housing and there's gonna be like a grocery store and a bunch of restaurants and some co-working spaces. And I think other, um, like neighborhood type businesses like doctor's offices and stuff that are all like built in from the beginning to this community and um, it's going to be kind of modeled after um, at kind of a European um, like city layout typology with like narrow streets um, and I mean like they they're considering all sorts of details kind of like a holistic approach to to neighborhood design um, and they're going to have zero parking for residents they're going to have a few parking spots on the edge for people from outside the community who come to like um, to go to the restaurants and stuff, um, but they it's designed around e-bikes. Um, the, the it's designed around the idea that all the residents have e-bikes, and it's uh, right next to the light rail that connects Mesa, Tempe, and Phoenix. So if people want to go to the airport or go to Mesa or whatever, uh, go to ASU. Um, it's like four or five stops from ASU on the light rail. So I think it's super inspiring. First of all, it's inspiring that the city of Tempe even like let this thing uh, <laughs> off the ground in the first place. Um, but from what I understand, um, as far as Arizona goes, like Tempe is by far the most progressive when it comes to uh, city government. So I think that's why it's happening in Tempe. Um, and yeah, both they also, like they the also idea have a really cool. They also have, a, uh, I think, a car share program for their for the residents. Yes. So. Yeah. 
because like if you live in in suburban Arizona, like you're still going to need a car to do some stuff, um, I, I, which is true in most of the country, right? So yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's uh, a critical part of the solution. Because the, then like if you need a car once a month, once every other month, then you can just like take the the shared car and and go do your thing. So um, yeah, I'm glad that that cul-de-sac is on your radar. Um, I hope that when it gets built, that you will go <laughs> visit it, take a look at it. I don't know when I'll get the chance to see it. I haven't been in Phoenix in like 10 years, um, but uh, maybe I'll, maybe when the cul-de-sac opens, I might have to go out there and, and pay it a visit, especially because like all my family's in Utah. So it's a, uh, it's just a quick plane ride down from, from Utah. Anyway. I, I got, I go to the website like every two months to just, to just check <laughs> just, on the progress. See the <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, yeah I, I get their I updates it as well. Yeah. Uh, I follow them on Twitter and on TikTok, and they uh, they have like a decent TikTok presence. So um, they like a lot of drone footage of their construction, which is always fun to see. Gosh, I love it. That's so cool, Tanner, that you know about that. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely quite a newbie with regards to the whole conversation of urban planning, urban design, and what I'm a bit sad we're running out of time. I would have loved to hear more about your thoughts on what good urban design is defined as in a certain sense. But with that, I, I, I am actually learning more with a, a friend locally on the last mile transportation problem. Yeah. And just how does Arizona, especially, I'd love to dive more into that over time too, right? Like the East Coast, it's a bit humid, but the temperature is not as volatile in the summers. And how Arizona, I sometimes do wonder, I, I love the idea of bikes. I love the idea of local transportation and urban transport that is non uh co2 inducing but it, it is also really hot and it's also the other issue is the metro we don't have the ability to forget what type of sediment we have underneath arizona oh but we can't actually drill easily to make metro lines because we have a certain type of rock and i forget what it's called gotcha and so now we're building on land and i keep trying to find the answer to what is an optimally designed solution for arizona especially as you're talking about land use issues, parking, zoning law issues, and, and Arizona just built out, right? And especially Phoenix and the greater Phoenix metropolitan area with about 6 million. We, it's, it's just such an interesting conundrum of one, we're kind of LA. We don't want to be LA. We don't want to have the issues that LA is having because they did not design as, I've, I'm hearing actually better things the more I ask about it, because everyone talks negatively about the public transport system of LA, but supposedly it's even better than, and very underrated. But yeah, they've built TV. out a lot in the last like 10 or 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to give LA a shout out as someone who like, who like used to sit in traffic for two hours a day. I, I want to <laughs> give LA a shout out for having uh, one of the most ambitious uh, transit expansion plans in, in the country. So, yeah, we're I love it. I hope they execute. Last time I went to the airport and tried to get to like Anaheim for Disney, I tried to use the public transfer system and they didn't even tell me that the trains weren't coming. So I, next, oh, right. next year, next year, there will be a people mover. Uh, it's about 30 years too late, but I'm glad that it's happening. What from, from LAX to the light rail, right? From LAX to uh, one of the metro stations. I don't, I don't know which yeah. one it is, um, but uh yeah, for, for context, right now, if you land in LAX and you take the quote-unquote public transportation to a subway station, like let's say Union Station, uh, you sit in, uh, what is it called, the air, you sit in a bus, 
and you sit in traffic with everyone else and it's it's yeah. really sad whenever i see it yeah like they but, they, but, they don't even yeah. give the bus a dedicated lane like like, like yeah. the 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 bar is on the floor right but then again like new york also refuses to do the same thing like laguardia doesn't have a uh a, a subway connection or an air train connection and they advertise the buses there's multiple buses like express buses that go there and they don't have dedicated lanes and so they get stuck in the same traffic anyway you you get it and i i i know that uh that we're out of time I, as you said i would also love to sit here for another hour and and discuss this stuff um but hugh if i do make it to arizona i would love to please hit you up reach out please 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 that would be fantastic honestly really and uh we can continue the conversation at that point if if not sooner absolutely without a doubt without a doubt um i do think like one final thing to ask you before we head out that we also can yeah. ask people is as someone who is working on a lot of different things and or has a lot of causes that you're supporting is there any type of shout out you'd like to give or you know micro ad that's not paid for <laughs> to any type of book community ngo nonprofit that you'd like people to look up and get some support to also how to um, how to join yeah. bike twitter <laughs> how to join bike twitter okay well that, that one's easy follow me because i retweet people all the time um my my twitter handle is at a whole lot tanner or if you just search for Tanner Thompson, I'm sure you'll find me. Um, I already gave one book a shout out, right? I gave Arbitrary Lines a shout out. Um, but there's another book that I'll give a shout out. Um, and that is Walkable City. This is like a great place to start. Um, the guy who wrote this, Jeff Speck, is um, kind of the, the face of the, the, the movement for, for walkable cities. He was trained as an architect. He's now an urban planner. Um, he wrote this book 10 years ago. Actually, if you're, if you're going to buy this book, wait just like three months because in November, the 10th anniversary edition of this book is coming out and it's going to have a hundred more pages of content, all the research that's happened in the last 10 years. Um, some of the, some of the stuff is actually like going to be contradicted, like stuff that you wrote 10 years ago that actually isn't true or isn't true anymore. Um, in particular, there's a lot of stuff about bikes and there's a lot of stuff about trees, about street trees. We didn't even get to cover street trees, but what, what? suffice it to say that street trees are amazing. They have myriad benefits and it'll be, in the 10th anniversary version of this book um, that's coming out in November. So yeah, read that, um, follow me on Twitter. And then like, yeah, biggest call to action is just like go to your city council meeting or if you can find an advocacy group, just find one of their meetings and go to it. Sometimes an advocacy group will have like a happy hour. They do that in Stanford here, People Friendly Stanford does. So like find a happy hour and go like get drinks with these people who care about this stuff and just like let them tell you about what's going on and find a way to get involved. As we like to say, you heard it here first, probably. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, wow. What an incredible day. I'm pretty sure every single person listening and ourselves learned quite a few new things today. So just want to say thank you so much, Senor Tanner Thompson, for coming on to the Moon Tea Podcast. This is a podcast to those who are tuning in for the first time a podcast where we talk about craft community and building them meaningful careers please reach out at moonteapodcast.gmail.com if you have any suggestions on how we can improve or any additional people that you think might be interested in joining to come on the podcast and show to talk about any platform or thing that they want to advocate for with that again tanner thank you and everybody else tune in next time yeah. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. See ya. <laughs>